In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew. This is just a short series because uh, I leave for vacation, so there is no church on Thursday. The, I think it's the 16th and the 23rd, so there will be no services Thursday those evenings because we'll be already gone on our way back to Wisconsin to see some family. Amy and I are both, uh, we grew up 15 minutes from each other and able to see family when we go back for a week, so we're pretty excited about that. But until then, this is what we call the historic readings. We're following the book of Matthew. And Matthew, you know, was a tax collector. So that was his job and probably a little bit comfortable in his job. And you can imagine any of you in your job just doing what you're doing. And then Jesus walks along and says, come follow me. He leaves everything. Right there at the tax collector booth and his life is forever changed. Uh, so much so that he wants other people to know what it's like to experience what it's like to know who Jesus is. And he wants the other Jewish people to know this. So he throws a party and he invites all his friends. It seems fairly shortly after this. He invites his friends and his friends, of course, were tax collectors as well. Not exactly loved by society. And the, the way the Bible talks about it is uh, sinners were also at the party. Prostitutes were at the party. So they kind of hung out together, right? They find misery loves company. And, but he said to the people, obviously, I want you to meet and see who Jesus is. And this, is, this doesn't just stop with a party invitation. He writes one of the longest gospels. And the whole point, the overarching point, if you'd say the umbrella point of the book of Matthew, is he is trying to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus truly is the promised Messiah. So he quotes Old Testament scripture more than any of the other books. And he goes through all the line. And he is trying to show again and again that Jesus is the promised Messiah to try and let them experience and know who Jesus is just as he does. So the, we're continuing. You could see if you're really keen, you could see that we had covered some of these uh, verses before, but I'll jump back into them. These are the ones we had last week and we just kind of finished. So these make no sense unless you realize what had happened in um, chapter 9. So there's kind of multiple sections in the book of Matthew if you really want to kind of take it apart. The first section, the most famous, would be the Beatitudes, and in the Beatitudes, Jesus is explaining, here's how you should function in community. This is how churches should function. This is how you uh, relate to believers. And now it is transitioned to say, as a believer, what does this look like as you go into the world? And how does it work and how do you function? This would be like almost a manual for us to, and for them to say, okay, we're going to go out into the world. So this is recorded three different times. It's also in Mark, it's in Luke, and it's in Matthew. This is the longest of the accounts. The only difference is in, in Luke, and we'll come back to that in a second, they use the expression of 70 people getting sent out rather than the 12. So we don't know if that's literally 70 people or it's a complete number. And just trying to show like uh, my, my son, his favorite number was 58 when he was a kid. So if he meant like a whole lot, he would say 58. That was his, how many, you know, how many fish sticks do you want? 58. That was his phrase. So this, that meant complete. That meant a bunch. And the word, the idea of 70 has that same idea. 144,000 has that same idea. 12 has that same idea. Numbers are a big deal to the Jewish people. Not such a big deal to us. So 
we have these two accounts, and Jesus was doing it. Uh, Matthew was explaining, connecting him to the book of Isaiah, saying he would go and he would heal. This is what the Messiah would do, and the people who couldn't hear would be able to hear, and the deaf, um, the deaf would be able to hear, and the people who couldn't uh, talk would sing God's praises, and those who couldn't move would uh, leap like gazelles, like deers, uh, deers, for a variety of deer. There we go. So all these things are prophecies that are coming true, and this is happening right now. And so Jesus does this, and then we get to the end of it, and Jesus says, now I am I'm sending you. So we, um, the disciples get ready, and they say a prayer, because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and I'm sending you. And so this is how this makes sense. We're transitioning, so this is his instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles. There's a number of things in the sections that we have that don't people argue about. This would be one of them. Do not go to the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Uh, what does that even mean? Uh, it seems Jesus had a game plan. We'll talk about that strategy. He said, go to the Jewish people first, and then we'll go to the Gentiles. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go and proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely. You have received freely give. So we have, this is their job. This is their manual, and he's going to give them a little bit uh, more detail in a second. So what is Jesus really asking them to do? At the heart of it, 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 and you have to connect these two things, Jesus is asking them to see people like Jesus saw people. And that was kind of one of the main things that we spent some time on. When Jesus saw the people, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. So I have a picture of this nice sheep that was nice enough to stand in the spotlight for me. So we have this picture of a sheep. And when you think about sheep, what do you usually think of? These are, this is often even how Jesus refers to human beings, humankind. When he looks at them, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And they're lost sheep of Israel. We get that same phrase. I'm sending you like sheep among the wolves. This is a very common theme. And if you know anything about sheep, sheep are like the most clueless of all animals. They're, they're pretty dumb. And, and I say that because, like, they need constant care. They need constant protection. Uh, they get lost. They fall into holes. They, if they fall on their back, they can't get up. If they have enough wool, they, they literally cannot give up. And so I, I, I looked at an article on the paper I, and the, on the Internet, and I'm looking like sheep that have, like, can't, like write themselves and there's all kinds of tips on how to help sheep that can't get back so just imagine this like you fall and you can't actually get yourself even on your stomach this is where sheep fit in and and i just think you know like well maybe that's a lot of animals but like what would happen if you just like let a horse go i think we'd like join a herd or something and you'd see this horse like 10 years later and it would well i don't know how long horses live but you'd see this horse just like eating food five years later. What happens if you, your dog escaped? You ever go to like the reservation, the Apache reservation? There's dogs running all over the place. These are, some of these are domesticated dogs that just people didn't want it anymore. The dog functions and they live and you see these dogs making, what happens when you let rabbits go? They breed like crazy and try and take over Castle Rock. That's what happens with these rabbits or, or pigs, right? Is anyone from Texas? Let a pig go, they become feral, and they take over the whole state. Like, this is just about any animal. You can just let it go. Chameleons or uh, any, you can let it go, and these things function in the wild. Sheep, they need shepherds. They need a shepherd with a crook because they're dumb and they fall into holes. They got to pull them out. The sheep falls on its back. You got to shave the sheep because now they bre That's probably a breeding thing because their wool actually never stops growing uh, just to supply things like great 
socks and things like that. So where, where do we get? I think the hardest part about the sheep in the comparison isn't so much like being dumb. A lot of us have done dumb stuff, but most of the problems that a sheep gets itself into are self-inflicted. Like whose fault is it when you fall into a hole? Like if you fell into a hole, it's your fault. It's not like someone else's fault. You're like, well, there's a hole here. No one told me about it. This is like the area of litigation. When you go skiing, it's like you need to every warning in America. Ask someone the difference between skiing in Europe and skiing in America. They said there's no warning signs in Europe. They're like, you're skiing. It's dangerous. Like here, you're going to tell people if there's a lip on the sidewalk so they don't wound themselves. Like I don't think it's super endearing. But here's the thing about sheep. They can be dumb and they can make all these self-inflicted problems. But do you know anyone who hates sheep? I know people that hate moths, snakes, spiders, cats, dogs. Like, who hates sheep? Have you ever heard someone like, oh, if I could just get rid of these sheep? Like, they're somewhat endearing, I think. For They might be dolts and they do stupid stuff, but they're somewhat endearing. It, and maybe that's the picture that God is trying to tell us as like sheep without a shepherd, his heart, your heart goes out. Like if you just saw a sheep stuck on its back, who here wouldn't want to try and help the sheep out? I think every one of us would. And so Jesus has, and, and that's what we talked about last week, it wasn't just like, I heard you're in a bad way. And he wasn't just saying my, my, my thoughts are with you or my heart goes with you, but he really splunknas that word. He feels it down in his guts. And what Jesus is calling the disciples to do is see, I want you to look at people the way I look at people. To feel where they're hurting, even when they're, the stuff they do is self-inflicted, even when it's dumb, even when it makes you so furious. Because you just think about Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus, perfect Jesus is here, and he has compassion. Jesus, who knows he's the one who's going to have to pay the price for their sins, that he's watching these people commit, he still has compassion and he doesn't come. And when you think about Jesus' default mode, I think we'd have to say it's compassion. Now, sure, he like flips the tables. He's done that before. But I mean, that happened like twice in his ministry. The, the Pharisees start leading the people the wrong way and he calls them whitewashed tombs. I mean, that's not a real positive name. But for the most part, what do you see? Compassion. You see Jesus speaking the truth, making contact with people, touching the untouchable people the lepers that no one wanted, they were unclean to touch them. And, and unclean in a different way, he calls Matthew, who is a social outcast for wholly different reasons. But what does he do? He embraces all these people. So the message and the, the, the job of the disciples was to love people like Jesus loved people. So the 12, they get ready and he gives them this assignment. And we're going to look at principles. So read this there's a lot of things, and I think this is, what does it look like? It's not so easy. We can say that really easy. Just go love people like Jesus loves people. And we've talked about this a number of times. But there's these balances that we have to do as Christians that are really, really hard. And it, there's some things in your life that are super easy. But there's some things that are not. So we're going to go through, I'm going to just give you a few principles in a row, that we, these things that we have to wrestle with. So he says to his disciples, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. 
If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And then he says, I'm sending you like sheep among the wolves. So there's a few things that we have coming. And I think the first one is when we talk about how Jesus, his primary response is compassion. His primary response is coming as a servant when he very well could be coming as one who judges. Like he's perfect. He's the one who makes the laws. But his default is to come and say, what can I do to help these people? And I think this would maybe be something that we would wrestle with. Like, um, what does this look like when it plays out in a church world? I would say there's lots of churches that their primary goal is to just show compassion to people. That's their primary goal. I want to show compassion, they would say, that we want to love all people. Everybody's accepted. I mean, there's all these things, and you get this sense. But they don't want to call people to repentance. They don't want to call people and say, here's God's truth. That's not right. I mean, and at the end of the day, that's essentially a community center. Like, you can go to the Castle Rock Community Center, and they're going to be nice to you. That's not the job of a church. So when Jesus sends the people out, even Jesus himself, just think about how Jesus functioned. Jesus would um, not only show all this compassion, heal the lepers, drive out demons, and his heart, he weeps when his friend is sick, but he, he reaches into people's lives. People who have self-inflicted problems. The woman who married five different guys, and what does he do? He interacts with her at the Samaritan well, or the woman who's caught in an adulterous relationship. They're ready to stone her, and what does Jesus say, though, at the end? He doesn't just give her a big old hug. He says, go and leave your life of sin. Like, this is, this is part of the two battles. So why do I bring this up? As a church, I think this is one of our struggles. There's two types of churches, really. You can kind of go on both ends. One balances loving and caring for people. The other is on the other end, which is part of our foundation, which is speaking the truth boldly. Like, what's our foundation as a church? April 15. 21 the diet of worms like you have the emperor of europe there you've got the civil dignitaries you have like the church of rome represented and here sits martin luther with this stack of books and they're saying you take back everything you've said and here's his quote i'll read it from my own i thought i had it up there uh here's his quote i am bound by scripture and my conscience has been taken captive by the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant. So in front of all these people, the world in a sense is watching. He says, there is no way I'm going to, you know, like go away from the truth. And I think this is part of the balance that we have as a church. God has called us to go on the one hand, speak the truth boldly and confidently and without without even a pause to say this is what happens when you don't know the truth but at the other end we got to somehow balance this in love and care for people if you're not doing both of these things we're doing something wrong and i think sometimes you have to say in your personal life what does that look like what about this uh, it talks about money uh, which is kind of a strange thing in the passage it talked about money which is always weird whenever ministry comes up god talks about money and it, how did he talk about it, it was a strange thing he said, you should go, on the one hand, the worker is worth his keep, which means if someone is proclaiming the gospel, he says, you go into the town, don't bring all this extra stuff. Like, you don't need to bring that. Someone is going to provide for you because if you are proclaiming God's word, they should provide for you. You should take offerings and people should pay for it. That's on the one hand, but 
the other thing that we have is there's no extra. He doesn't, doesn't, the intention is not to be like the tax collectors and get rich at this. You're not supposed to have a job like this where you're making all kinds of dough. Like the idea is that you get enough for doing your job and that some, this comes from the people, but then there's this other balance that there's not too much. That's not this opulent lifestyle. We got that problem. We look at what Jesus, he goes to um, the towns and villages. People talk about strategy, but what's one of Jesus' strategies? He said, go first to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. That's a strategy. So why is that a strategy? Because obviously we want all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, but can we actually go and proclaim the truth to all people? I feel like it's really warm in here. Strategy, we have this desire to go to every single person on the whole planet, but you got to make choices. And I think the same thing is true as your church. You say, like, we're, we'd like to evangelize all of Castle Rock, but at the end of the day, you only have so much money, and you're saying, what am I doing? So what were some of the strategies they did in the Bible? Jesus came and he said, I want you to first connect with the Jewish people, because if you can get a Jewish person to recognize, and they can be converted in a single day, because they're waiting for the Messiah, and then here they come and they recognize Jesus is the one, that they've been waiting for for thousands of years, now they can go to all the other people. That's one of their strategies. What does Paul do? That's another example. Paul goes and he goes to, calls the God-fearing Gentiles. And what is that? That's someone who's converted. Why would he do that? Because his message and his mission was to the Gentile people. He could have gone to Jewish people. He could have just gone to pagan people. But instead, he goes to the Gentile people who have seen that God and the true God is the God of Israel and the God, the Christian God. So now he uses those people as bridges into the community. And I think there's something said even in your own place where you work and you function to say, who, who are people that I can connect with that could be a bridge to the gospel that we move forward? Maybe one more. Uh, when we talk about this strange thing, when he talks about the dust on their feet, and that's a, w these are these two things that are battling, and uh, two more maybe, um, one is this dust off their feet. He said, when you go to the town, uh, knock the dust off your feet if they reject you, which is a strange term. And it's strange what would happen is Pharisees at that time, if they went into a house, they didn't want to have any connection with unclean Gentile people. They would like knock their feet off because they didn't want the dust from their house to be following with them. That's what you would do to Gentile people. He is saying, if these people reject you, these Jewish towns, you should treat them like Gentiles, which is this very, very strong rebuke. And like th this, this is almost unheard of to the people. So what is this again saying, this idea that says, go and love and find and proclaim. But if they reject you, if they reject you, this is serious, and rebuke them and that nation. Take it one step further. He says it'd be better for those people, it'd be better for the people, um, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for the people that reject you on that day. Why is that true? Like Sodom and Gomorrah physically felt fire and brimstone come down and it destroyed them. But spiritually, what is going on? Why is it a bigger deal if they were, why would it be a bigger deal for them to feel rejected? It's simply this. They had an opportunity to hear the gospel. If you go into a town and you hear about the gospel, the Bible says much, for those who much has been giving, much has been expected, God is expecting that more would be come from you. So this is serious, right? Because what are you doing right now? You're listening to the gospel. So hopefully it's a little bit clearer. You're learning a little bit more about what God expects of you. And when you have more expectation, God expects more of you. And I think this is just what a, a parent does. I'll, I think just about everyone here has 
uh, kids or nieces or nephews, when it, someone has a lot of skills, that's like the most depressing thing in your whole life. It's not like when someone really struggles. When I teach, I teach Latin. It's not the kids that really struggle at Latin that aren't really good at it, and you kind of work with them. That doesn't bother me at all. It's the ones who are really good and just don't care. And that's what God is saying in a sense, that the more you know about what God expects of you, the more God expects you not just to know it, but to live it. There's a, he's not a Christian, but Jordan Peterson is a philosopher. He's kind of a, socio- a sociologist. Is that the right term? He's Canadian. And he says it this way. He, someone asked if he believes in God, and he talked for an hour, but he never actually said it. He said, I live in such a way as if God exists. And I wonder how often, because you can say anything. You can say anything you want, but it's a different story to say, does my life reflect the things that I actually hold dear? And that's what he's really calling us to do. Now, don't feel bad. I mean, this is what it says in the book of James. Not many of you should become teachers. We do need teachers. My fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. What's the concept there? If you stand up before people and say, this is what God says, on the last day, God has higher expectations as you face. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to go to hell or something like that. He's saying we're all Christians, but there is a higher expectation. Just like if one of your kids can, has a 140 IQ and one has an 80 IQ, you have different expectations of what's going to come of them. So where does this all go, and, and where do we swing around? That God, we come back to that Luke passage, and if the seven, 70 really is this perfect number, God is really saying, this doesn't just apply to the 12 disciples. He's saying, I'm sending out, like, everybody. Like, every Christian, I want to become part of ministry. Every Christian, I want to know and have a compassion for people. Every Christian, I want to go out into the world and to carry this out. There's a problem, I think, though. Uh, When's the last time you changed your own oil? Okay, maybe maybe you have, but maybe not for a while. Um, I had a gutter that broke, and I'm a guy who likes to fix everything. My friend tells me there's a there's a guy who's really good. He's not that expensive. He fixed my gutter. It looks perfect. Works perfectly. I had a guy with my lawn, my sprinklers. Usually I'm like, okay, how many hours would it take me to figure out how these sprinklers work, this particular one, to find out what's wrong? And I call my guy up. He's like, I could do it for 100 to 150 bucks. And I'm like, well, how long will it take? He's like, I'll be done tonight. I'm like, done. You take Venmo? <laughs> like, we helped each other out. He didn't take Venmo. I showed him the ways of Venmo. So this is, like, what is happening? Th- they're experiencing this thing. There's a book uh, called The Outsourced Self, and it's really talking about functioning in America, and this is, is going to be a longer thing to, to lead up to where we're going with. Uh, we're, in s- we're so busy, and we're so exclusive at the things that we do, so we earn money for being exclusive and doing the things that we do, that on one level we can afford these simple things, right? Like having someone fix your sprinkler and things like that. There's also a shift that's happening as people move around for work. So what used to happen is you would hang out and just think about like another generation or two above you, that people didn't really move away from home. So what, who would watch the kids when you had to go to work or something? Like the grandparents would watch the kids or who would, how would you name your kids? You'd name your kids after one of your relatives and how would you determine like what church you went to? You went to the same church that your parents went to and then how do you determine like uh, what are the best tips for raising kids? I mean, that, that happens through your parents. So you talk about what happens when your parents get really old. And some of you have experienced this on some level 
you say back there was a time where people would take care of them. You talk about the Jewish society and they would they'd have multiple families in a, like a single room house or two room house. All of this is getting to intimate things that you used to do yourself are now being outsourced. So I'll give you one that probably hits home for a lot of people when you think about at some point the care of your parents gets to be too challenging and you outsource it. That's something that used to happen. You're paying someone to do something that's very kind of intimate and to give them love and concern. That dating. It used to be you would go meet somebody in your hometown and then you'd get to know each other. You knew each other. How many stories do you have like that? Where they're like, we knew each other since we were six and seven and she punched me in the face or something like that. That doesn't exist anymore. And I talked to 20-something people that they're like, how do you even date? And there's a high percentage of people that meet online. That's kind of outsourcing in a sense. They, someone else is trying to do the matches for you so that this happens. How many people still plan their own wedding? Completely. I mean, some, but some people outsource it. You got two people, double income, they're working. People are getting work, married later, so they're coming on 30-ish when they get married. They've got the money. They're like, let's just have someone else plan it so we don't have to worry about it. People plan their vacations. People have someone do just about everything you can conceive of. We say, let's leave it to the professional because they're really good at it. And sometimes you do that with church. When Jesus says, I want you to come along in ministry, it's really easy to say, let's just kind of leave it to the professionals. Let's outsource it. And I'll give my offering, and let's just get the right people to do that. Let's get the right people to go into the world. Let's get the right people to talk to people. Let's get the right people to share the gospel. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says he wants everyone to go. And there's a reason for that. Because, I mean, if you look at Ephesians, we're God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You're created in a unique way, and we've been talking about this for a few weeks, but that comes down to your age. It comes down to where you grew up. It comes down to your ethnicity. It comes down to your gender. It comes down to if you have kids or you don't have kids. It comes down to your failures. It comes down to the diseases that you have, the illnesses you struggle with, the surgeries you function with. This is all things that God has used so that you could be the person that steps into someone's life. Maybe say it a different way. There are some hands only you can hold. And there's some, there's some demons, in a sense, that only you can drive out. There's some people that won't let anyone else near them but you. You can't outsource that. And you can't have an impact unless you actually go where people are. So Jesus to the 12 and Jesus to the 70 and Jesus to the billions of Christians, including the ones right here, say, I have come. I have brought forgiveness for you. I have showed you what it's like to have, be loved and, and feel Christ's compassion. I want other people to know that. Matthew wanted other people to know. He throws a party and he writes a book just so people know who Jesus is. I don't know what it looks like in your life, but I know you can't outsource it, and you got to go and do this incredibly intimate, wonderful thing that says, here's who Jesus is. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so thankful for the time that you give us together in your word. Help us as we struggle these days. We get ready for our independence, independence not only spiritually, but physically as we live in America. Give us the, the courage, really, to step forward 
that we don't outsource all the things that you've given us. There's plenty of things that just allow us to enjoy the things that we have. One of those things is sharing your word. One of those things is caring for people. One of those things is showing compassion. And we can't be a church that just proclaims the truth. We have to be a church that cares about people. And we have to be a church that does make those two things happen at once. That's a hard thing to do. So we pray that we have patience. We pray that we have motivation. We pray that we can set aside and just take a look at the world and recognize the gifts you've given us and the, the empowerment that you've given us to step forward to share your word. We ask this in your name. Amen.